Welcome to Accelerating Equity, Cancer Care for All, a podcast from AACI, the Association of American Cancer Institutes. Comprised of 102 academic and freestanding cancer centers across the United States and in Canada, AACI is dedicated to accelerating progress against cancer through research, treatment, and advocacy. Diversity and inclusion are key to fulfilling our mission. This podcast series is hosted by AACI President Dr. Karen E. Knudsen, Enterprise Director of the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson Health in Philadelphia. It is a component of Dr. Knudsen's AACI Presidential Initiative, which aims to mitigate and raise awareness of cancer disparities. Hello, everyone. I'm Karen Knudsen, Executive Vice President of Oncology Services for Jefferson Health and Director of our Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center. Most importantly, I also have the privilege of serving as the president of the Association of American Cancer Institutes, AACI. AACI's mission is to leverage the strength of North America's 102 leading cancer centers to accelerate progress against cancer. As I hope you know or have heard, the presidential initiative for AACI is to mitigate cancer disparities using the strength of these 102 centers. With a goal toward assessing the current efforts of our major cancer centers, aligning and understanding best practices, and addressing gaps through action. Now, one of the key tactics of our mitigation strategy is to also use this podcast series to create awareness through interacting with key stakeholders and partners. For this first inaugural podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Ned Sharpless with us, former Cancer Center Director at UNC's Lineberger Cancer Center, and of course, serving us nationally now as the National Cancer Institute Director. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharpless, for joining us, for your service, and for everything that you do. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Excellent. I'm really thrilled to have you, and it's so incredibly timely. So I would like to explore some territory about the role of NCI and centers and how we're working together to understand and mitigate uh, cancer disparities. But of course, right now, the national attention is really directed toward multiple pandemics, multiple things we're facing nationally, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, and then a heightened awareness of disparities and potential racism throughout health systems and in, in cancer care. So this is occurring at multiple levels. I know quite some attention to understanding what the underlying reasons are. And AACI is really working actively to try to be a key component of understanding that from the cancer perspective and providing solutions. At last year's AACI meeting, we had a session uh, understanding various ways that cancer centers, for example, are working to reduce the burden of cancer for people of color, especially black communities, through efforts that are undertaken in all aspects of our business, waiting rooms, laboratories, patient education, office suites, and of course, through the NCI's appropriate focus on community outreach and engagement. I know you're really well aware of all the things we're doing. Can you help our audience understand additional examples of how NCI is working in communities and through or with cancer centers toward these same goals? Sure, yeah, it's a really important topic of the National Cancer Institute, and it's great to talk about this with a, such an important partner as AACI in these endeavors. And I might mention a couple of things about it. So first off, it's important to state that the NCI is really focused on funding research. So we really want to drive this, the science behind why these disparities exist and, and particularly how you can address them. You know, if certain 
the science of disparities tends to be really interesting and, and often they're multifactorial and they have complicated causes that interactions of race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status and education and access to care and rurality versus urbanity and a bunch of issues wrapped up in this. And so sort of disentangling them can be very challenging, but you know, it's important to do because that's really how you begin to address them. So you have to find out what's driving these uh, disparate outcomes and really understand them and then, and then, and then focus resources to try and fix them. And so we fund research across the waterfront on those, you know, on those questions to understand why they occur and are there certain kinds of uh, dis dissemination and implementation practices that work? And we do this in a number of ways, but I, th I think one of the most important ways we do this is through the cancer centers. And so, you know, it's really interesting history. I, I think the NCI has, has one of the strongest portfolios in health disparities research in the world. We may be the world's leading funder of health disparities research, as far as I know. And, and if you look at the history of how that came about, it, it really was in large part through the cancer centers where a sort of um, almost weedy bureaucratic change to the guide on what we recommend cancer centers do to focus on this notion of catchment area made, you know, uh, on the order of a decade ago, had this tremendous impact where all of a sudden we told cancer centers that they were going to be evaluated by how they conducted research to benefit their catchment area and all populations in those catchment area. And that meant in particularly underserved populations in those catchment areas. And that has been a really effective paradigm because that meant all of a sudden now the cancer center director and the provost and the dean and these, you know, these leadership, of these institutions all of a sudden cared about the quality of health disparities research at these institutions. And so the, the really marvelous portfolio of cancer health disparities research, the NCI funds is often, you know, largely directed through the cancer centers. And I think a lot of it is really was started in response to that, that, that pressure from the NCI to, uh, you know, to serve their catchment areas. The institutions themselves really want to do this. You know, they want to be a good, you know, good cancer centers for the people they serve. And so they're, they're very excited to take this challenge on. It was nothing the NCI to twist anyone's arm, but I think it was, you know, that, that focus placed in the, uh, in the evaluation criteria that has been uh, very, very important. The last thing I'll say about it is that um, while, while we do, uh, as I say, have a, a strong portfolio in this area and have, made a substantial increase in funding uh, to health disparities research over even the last few years. I still think it's important for the NCI to always ask, are we doing enough and are we doing the right stuff? And so starting, uh, you know, a few months ago, right after the George Floyd uh, events of the summer, uh, the NCI created a, a real uh, focused effort in this area called the Equity Inclusion Program, which has a complex group of working groups and committees to really look at topics of racial justice and how the NCI can be uh, productive in this area. And, and, and we, we sort of focused on three areas. One is the, the, the question of health disparities research, but equally important and, and often uh, almost harder to work on sometimes is the issue of workforce diversity. So are we really providing means to train a diverse group of next generation of cancer scientists and cancer caregivers? And then the last area of focus is really on the culture of the NCI itself. Is it a place where uh, we have an inclusive and welcoming community and it, it, it's, it's good for all our employees. And so that, that process has been really hard at work for the last several months and has been, I think, very, very successful. I'm sure you're aware that the NIH recently announced their own efforts in this regard, the so-called Unite Initiative, which is focused on some of the same areas. And the NCI and the NIH have been working really you know, closely together on, on these various initiatives to make sure that the NIH and the NCI are doing everything they can to uh, address these important issues that are very much top of mind, as you mentioned.
Yeah, I actually, I saw that announced yesterday, you know, really fantastic effort. I want to touch a little on, on both the themes that you, you brought up there of the you know, fantastic examples the NCI is working on. With regard to health disparities research, I think you're right. You know, we've done so much together as a cancer community to understand. Are there any gaps that, that come to mind of things where you feel like we're doing something but not enough or, or we're not yet started? Well, you know, um, one area that uh, some of the scientists in the National Cancer Institute, you know, primarily Bob Croyle in the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences and, and, and others that work in those areas have really focused on, we've been talking about it for a while, but it's been hard, it's been tr- hard to get a handle on this experimentally is this notion of um, rurality. You know, so, so uh, individuals who have uh, decreased access to care because they live 400 miles from the nearest good cancer center or whatever. And, and, and there's, the statistics here are, are concerning. So that, that if you compare outcomes for rural versus urban patients in the United States, there's a gap and it's been getting worse, you know, every year since the 1990s. And, and, and so what we can do to address uh, this, 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 this area of disparity is uh, an interesting question, but it's hard to work on. So rurality is actually surprisingly hard to define you have counties like uh, San Bernardino County in Southern California, which is the size of Switzerland, and almost everybody lives in the far east western extent of the county and commutes to LA. And so it's not rural in the sense of like Eastern North Carolina, but yet by any sort of um, you know population density or these these rurality maps, they're both counted the same. And then, then you have these counties in you know Maryland where everybody owns horses and they you know it's very affluent part of the country. So, you know, rurality is a hard thing to study, and it's, it's confounded by things like race. You know, there are places, eastern North Carolina or, or, or parts of, you know, the southeast, Alabama, Louisiana, that where uh, rural uh, is synonymous with African-American, but there are other parts of the country where that's not true. And it's confounded by things like uh, socioeconomic status and access to education and then access to care. And so it's been a hard to work on and to figure out you know, what we can really do. So, you know, Bob and colleagues have introduced this new paradigm that I think is interesting, which is they've, they've taken analyses from other areas and, and, and laid it now, uh, you know, use the same framework for cancer research around this notion of persistent poverty. And so they, what they've really done is mapped in the United States, the counties and zip codes that have uh, not only have uh, more than 20% of the population in that area live below the poverty line, but that's been the case for decades. So, the, you know, in the census data going back 40 years, these are counties that have been persistently poor for decades. And, and as you can imagine, those counties are, more of them are African-American than, than uh, you know, it, they're enriched for African-American and Hispanic uh, enriched counties, but there certainly many of them are uh, not African-American or, or, or Hispanic counties, you know, predominant counties. So, you know, there's a race element to it, an ethnicity problem, but that's not the entire problem. Uh, and uh, if you think about that, and, and they're mostly rural, there, there are a few urban areas that uh, meet that definition, but by the vast majority are uh, rural counties in the United States that have been uh, persistently poor for decades. And that is a real structural challenge. If you think about how to get in, uh, you know, you have a great new monoclonal antibody that, you know, treats lung cancer very effectively works great given in a, in a major cancer center in an urban area, but you know, it may have complex care. It may have side effects. It may be, uh, you know, difficult to administer and you have to then move that therapy to these structurally challenged counties and areas. That's a real problem. So, so I, I think, you know, this access issue 
uh, is now, you know, at, the good news in cancer research is we have things that work better and better and we have effective therapies. And now getting, you know, those new treatments to everyone, because even people who, who live in these situations that are, are challenged is, um, is, is, is an important priority. It's, I think it's, it's, it's going to be really critical if we want to address, address national cancer statistics and uh, still an area where we have a lot more work to do. Yeah, I really appreciate you calling that out as a, a highlight and a priority area for research. And we, we, as AACI, would really like to be your partners in this. And you know, one of the things you talked about was a geospatial mapping and understanding of where the major cancer problems lie for which there's a gap. So one of the things that AACI has done recently is asked all of the 102 centers, not just the NCI centers, to map out their catchment area. Let us know what is the population that you're serving so that we can truly understand what's being covered and where are uh, some deserts of areas where major centers are not studying their, their catchment area. So we're just completing that first phase of analysis. It was an AACI milestone. This says anything about interest in that all 102 cancer centers gave us their information on the catchment area. And the next deep dive is their understanding of what the challenges are in that catchment area and what best practices they're using to mitigate them. So that's, that's really one of our next phases. So we'll be working in close partnership with the NCI and disclosure there. Uh, I think if I could say one other thing about that, I, that's a really important effort. And, um, you know, a really interesting research question out of all this, the kind of thing the NCI was the fund is, is how is telehealth going to change all this? Because, you know, now... It may be that some of these geographic barriers that really used to constrain access to care will uh, will not be so formidable if you can do a lot of this by virtual visits. So I think, but not everything works by telehealth, right? So that's a research question. You know, what are the things we can do uh, over the internet and what are the things we can't do? And, and, and that's something we're going to have to figure out if we really want to address these, uh, the, the, these access uh, barriers. I, I very much agree. You know, we've seen in some of our centers, we did our own internal surveys on telehealth to try to understand the state of where we are. And we saw some centers reporting up to 5,000% increases over short periods of time in telehealth. So understanding from a research perspective, what is the impact on patient care, on outcomes, on patient reported outcomes, on the perception of the provider? And their ability to conduct correct cancer care in their mind that they have uh, confidence in is, is a really important area for us. So because, as you pointed out, we have patients in rural communities who lack access to specialists, uh, you know, are there things the NCI can do to help support telemedicine for cancer care outside the research mission? A lot of the issues um, related to telehealth uh, are really the providence of, of CMS, you know, because, because much of this is, is guided by what payers will pay for. And, and, you know, so some of the barriers to utilization of telehealth have really been because of payer issues. There are other challenges too. There's, you know, uh, uh, malpractice coverage and state licensure issues that, you know, when you, when pay, when patients may live in one state, but can seek care in a different state. So there are some weedy uh, payer and administrative issues that uh, limit utilization of telehealth that the NCI really can't do much about. There are other parts of the federal government or their state government. Other than I think we can do research that's very important research to show what are the benefits of telehealth and, and what are, are, the, are the drawbacks of it and, and, and then provide that information to these policymakers, to, you know, CMS and to the state and, and the private payers and the, and the state governments that make these decisions. So I, I think the argument for why we uh, 
think this is beneficial to our patients is something the NCI can help make, uh, you know, through uh, well-designed studies. I, I think also, you know, an important thing to mention that sometimes gets forgotten about is, is telehealth is a real boon for uh, clinical trials research, right? So, you know, you can accrue patients by telehealth, you can do consent over the phone, you can, we can now have, uh, you know, oral agents shipped directly to patients. So the ability to do uh, teleconsent, for example, has been really important to our research mission as well, and something we don't lose sight of. But I, I think that um, we also have to be uh, very clear that not everything can be done by telehealth. And, 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 and we can't just assume that, you know, this is, uh, it's going to work for uh, all, all um, aspects of patient care. And, and, and so it is, an, it is an interesting and important research question as to, you know, what, what things, what aspects of patient care work really well in the virtual setting and, and what things uh, will we never really you know, we'll, we'll always have to do in person. And, and, and I, I think this can be surprising, you know, obviously things like, you know, screening mammograms and colonoscopy and infusions have to be done in person. That's not a surprise, but I think also there are some aspects of uh, patient care, you know, understanding symptoms and, you know, palliative medicine. The, these may be things where uh, the ability to actually lay eyes and hands on the patient is very, very important, but maybe not. I mean, this is a, a research area um, but I think that uh, left to their own devices, the payers and, and state agencies will want to revert to the status quo. And if we really want this change that many of us think has been beneficial for patients to persist, then we have to provide the evidence that it really is valuable. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. And I think you'll find receptive partners in the AACI centers and wanting to help garner that research. We certainly have become subject matter content experts over the last year with the wealth of information that's been gained, but also a real desire to your point to want to insert telehealth into the cancer care continuum at all of the right places, you know, where it is appropriate and beneficial to the patient, but at the same time, understand where telehealth is not probably best placed. So, you know, really terrific point of view there. One of the things that you also touched on was looking at diversity of your own workforce at NCI. And that's also something the ACI centers have been very keen to try to understand I think that we all believe that change starts with self-awareness. So we, in conjunction with the Cancer Letter, did lead a survey of all the centers to ask, what does our leadership team look like? And there were some important learnings that were resulting from that data that I believe have already begun to take hold and take action. You know, according to the survey we had, there are many opportunities for increasing diversity in the cancer center workforce. Many are individuals are already in the pipeline, for example, for the, especially for a cancer center director. So in your opinion, having lived this life as a cancer center director and now as the head of NCI, are there other things that we might consider to better train, promote, and support individuals so that we can achieve the diversity that we'd all like to see in cancer center leadership? Yeah, I think, I think this is a really important goal. There, there, you know, I think we first honestly have to be very frank and say that we need to do this, that, that um, having a, a diverse workforce, ha having doctors and leaders that look like the patients they serve is, is a really important goal for all of us. And, and there should be uniform agreement on that, that that's, uh, that's something we, uh, an area we want to move toward. And I think that um, we also have to admit that uh, one solution that's sometimes proposed for this problem is to fund, you know, because it's relatively easy for 
funders like the NIH and the NCI, they dedicate monies to specific topics, to, to fund topics of research. And that may be, you know, like cancer health disparities research. Uh, that, that may be a useful thing to do, but that by itself will not solve this problem, right? So, so there are plenty of uh, really great cancer health disparities researchers who are not underrepresented minority scientists, and there are plenty of underrepresented minority scientists who don't work on cancer health disparities, right? So you can't address the problem just by increasing the spend on cancer health disparities. There may be other reasons to do that, but if you really want to promote the diverse, diversity of the uh, research workforce and the, the faculty at you know, the cancer centers, the great institutions we serve, then uh, you know, additional solutions might be needed. You know, the NCI uh, has tried to do many things in this area. Uh, you know, it, it's relatively straightforward for us to fund training initiatives. Uh, that, that is something that is uh, well within the law of the kinds of activities we're allowed to support uh, with federal monies. And so for many years, the NCI has promoted uh, diversity and training through a number of initiatives. One of the better known is the CURES program, which continuing umbrella for research experiences run out of the center for uh, CRCHD at the NCI. And it's been a very successful program. It's trained over 4,000 scientists. You know, many of these are people who are now in leadership positions uh, uh, that are well-known well scientists. But, um, you know, as successful as the CURE program has been, it, you know, there's still a pipeline problem. There still are not enough great scientists at the junior faculty level, particularly with regard to African-American scientists, but I think also a problem for other underrepresented minorities like Hispanic scientists. So there aren't enough at the junior faculty level, and there certainly aren't enough at the leadership level. Uh, when we look at any analysis of, you know, who is in our grant-funded pool. Uh, so we are very, very committed to training experiences. We thought about other ways, you know, are there things we could do to reach earlier into the pool? So we have like the YES program, which is, tries to get, uh, includes experiences for even like high school and middle school students to try and get them interested in cancer research and then keep them involved in cancer research through undergrad and graduate school and postdoc and, and becoming eventually scientists in cancer or caregivers in cancer. Uh, so that, that, you know, the training side is an area where I think the NCI is thought creatively, but, um, you know, it's certainly not a problem we solved. There's another uh, a school of thought on this, which is maybe uh, the creation of cohorts and in institutions would be beneficial. If you talk to people who've been successful uh, from underrepresented populations uh, and, and who've been very successful in academia, they, they often mention that one of the things that was important to their success was a, a good mentor or a good community that supported them at an early stage in their career. And so the idea is that if we funded cohorts underrepresented minority scientists and institutions that were really committed to diversity and faculty training, that would be beneficial. The most visible example of this today is this thing called the FIRST initiative, which is a common fund initiative led by uh, the NIH. It's, it's Francis Collins's supported effort, but it's really being administered by the NCI, working with the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities uh, at NIH. So um, the NIMHD and, and the NCI are really administering this program and it will provide funding to academic institutions to create uh, you know, on the order of 12 uh, faculty from underrepresented populations who will then presumably benefit from the commitment of that institution to, 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 under, to the faculty diversity, but also from the interactions within each other. And those two things I think are, are important, you know, with regard to training and career development. But I'm also very interested in, in, in how do we solve the problem of um, just getting more grants to underrepresented minority PIs. And, uh, you know, there is a little more challenging. Uh, the, the NIH is governed by laws uh, regarding who we can fund, and, and we are not allowed to predicate awards based on race, ethnicity, or gender, or other issues like that. 
Uh, so we have to be you know, driven by peer review and, and, and secondary counsel review as, as stated in the law. But I still believe there are opportunities for the NCI to consider uh, the diversity of our portfolio and make sure that we fund, uh, you know, we, we, we have to make sure that we fund uh, not all areas in one, not all science in one area. So we couldn't have, you know, all breast cancer grants and no colon cancer grants. And similarly, we couldn't have all our grants go to one city or one state. We, so we are allowed to use things like geographic diversity and topic diversity when considering uh, funding decisions. And I, and I would argue we, we should also be using uh, diversity of the, uh, of the scientists themselves as, as one of many considerations when we make grant decisions. And, and, and so we've started to talk about how to implement that within the NCI in a way that is um, always supports excellent, outstanding, top-notch science, uh, but also, uh, you know, facilitates the, uh, diver the diverse population of researchers. Uh, one luxury the NCI has in this regard, uh, uh, the good news or, or maybe bad news, depending on your perspective in this regard for the NCI, is that uh, we get so many great grants. I mean, we have these very low pay lines because we get thousands of applications for the best scientists. It really isn't difficult for us to pick wonderful science uh, to support using select pay. It's not a challenge to find great grants that we're, you know, not typically be able, able to get through through normal funding mechanisms. The cancer centers, as I know you know, are, are really good partners in this as well, trying hard to reach into the K through 12 po population and show wide swaths of our communities that we serve what a career in cancer looks like, cancer research and cancer care. And we talked a lot about the underrepresented minority pipeline enrichment strategies, which are critical. But what about women? You know, uh, it's arguably a different type of situation where women at higher numbers are entering the pipeline yet are not reaching up in equitable levels into leadership roles. Yeah, I think um, they're, they're, our data are very clear that uh, the, the, the number of women who are getting grants and getting into leadership is increasing. It's going up. The trajectory is positive. It's just too slow. So, it, 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 it will, you know, it, it needs to be accelerated. But um, that, that's different from our data regarding African-American PIs in the RPG pool, which is not, we don't see the same progress. With, with one exception, by the way, which is interesting, which is for some reason that I don't fully understand, the, uh, the SBIR award, the award mm -hmm. given to startup companies, to commercialization opportunities, uh, we haven't seen the uptick in, in uh, female PIs there that we've seen in other mechanisms like RO1s and SPORs and center grants. And, and, and I, I have no clear explanation for that. It has improved a little bit in recent years, but still at the NCI and across the NIH entirely, that mechanism has lagged versus other mechanisms. And, and I think that's a, an interesting question. You're starting companies is really important. That's how you translate things, you know, new ideas to patients. And uh, so why, why we've been less successful in engaging women in that, that, that topic is uh, something I think a lot about and I, I'm worried about. But, uh, you know, how to really speed the process in terms of leadership uh, grants for women is uh, – is an important concern. Uh, the NIH and the NCI have um, really become worried about some of the culture issues uh, that exist at institutions that persist, you know, sort of uh, low levels of maybe unrecognized or uncommented on, you know, sexist behavior that compromises the career development, particularly of, of, of uh, women who are junior faculty. And, uh, you know, we had a, a, a robust effort across the NIH, including the NCI, to uh, look at what's being done extramurally that, um, where we can have an effect. And so the, the NIH really had a, a, an advisory committee director report on this topic. 
of gender harassment and uh, and um, I was briefly on that uh, working group until I got sent to the FDA for a sabbatical for nine and, and had to be removed, but I'm still well, well, well aware of the progress of the effort. It's delivered a set of recommendations a, a few months ago that have been taken up by the NIH and it's, you know, it, it, it again is uh, always limited a little bit by what we can do in terms of our extramural funding authorities because of the law, but nonetheless, I think it's a very substantive and important set of recommendations and it's many things that, you know, many of the things are cultural, just saying we, we find uh, gender harassment unacceptable. Uh, you know, everybody deserves an environment that will uh, foster their career and, 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 and will be a place that people want to work and, and feel is inclusive and welcoming. Uh, but it's also, uh, we require institutions to assure that PIs are in good standing with regard to this. So some of the misbehaviors that have occurred in the past have been when institutions don't tell the NIH about uh, faculty that have, uh, uh, you know, significant complaints against them. And, and, and for whatever reason, the institutions are unwilling to come forward with that information. So we make clear that kind of behavior is unacceptable that, uh, you know, when uh, there are people who are, are not good uh, mentors, uh, that we become aware of that and we, uh, and, and the institutions take actions to mitigate those. So we're, we're really trying to focus on the, um, the, the conditions that allow women to be successful because, uh, you know, we have the data already that if that's the case, Women can get R01s. Women can write U01s and PO1s. They will. They will be successful scientists, and they will get grants and uh, and rise to leadership positions if they're just sort of not held back by old institutional norms that are something we shouldn't tolerate going forward. Yeah. Well, that's really good to hear. You know, across again all these comprehensive efforts and lots of parallel efforts going on at all of our centers. So look forward to sharing experiences and working together toward that end. So Dr. Sharpless, another question for you arises as a result of the fact that we do have this new dynamic and a new presidential administration. To your point, the NCI director reports to, to the president, and uh, we wonder if you could give us a sense of what might be coming under this new administration and their interest in the cancer mission. Yeah, it's still early days. I mean, we're only uh, less than two months into the new administration, but uh, clearly there's every possible sign coming to this administration of very interesting cancer research. So already we've had a visit to the NIH by the president, by the vice president, and virtually by the first lady. The first lady was so interested in cancer research that she actually asked us to take her on a visit to, uh, to a cancer center. So we went and visited VCU, the Massey Cancer Center with uh, Dr. Wynn, and because uh, she wanted to see what they were doing with regard to uh, reaching uh, communities that are served by VCU, particularly through a, 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 an initiative to work with faith-based leaders in the community. Really, really nice visit. So clearly everybody in this administration is pretty interested in cancer research, as everyone I think is aware, the president, the first lady have a strong, and the vice president, by the way, have strong personal connections to cancer. Uh, and, uh, and, and the president has been very forthright about his interests in seeing um, cancer progress advanced as rapidly as possible. So uh, there's a lot of excitement in, in, at the present time. And, and uh, exactly the form of uh, new initiatives in cancer research, I think are still uh, under discussion. But I believe that, um, you know, we have the opportunity now to build on the good trajectory we've had over the last few years of improving outcomes and decreasing mortality and, you know, lots of new uh, approved drugs and devices for cancer. So build on that good trajectory. And now uh, with a, a strong leadership at the, uh, from the present administration to really um, do some exciting new things in cancer through, uh, whether that's entirely through the NCI or other parts of the federal government remains to be seen. But I think that... Um, We'll have to stay, stay, stay tuned and see the details. One uh, initial clue is um, the president has involved heavily 
uh, Eric Lander, who is a well-known uh, geneticist and uh, leader in biomedical research, uh, former uh, director of the Broad Institute at, in Boston, and uh, well-known to the cancer research community. And Eric has now been uh, elevated to a cabinet-level position, which is the first time that uh, this is, you know, have a scientist of that quality on the cabinet. So I, I think uh, that's exciting to have a scientist of that quality who knows so much about cancer research guiding some of this national mission, I think is a really uh, a good opportunity to get this right. Yeah, I agree. I think it will be a new opportunity. We very much look forward to hearing what these outcomes look like and what the, what the charge will be from the, the president of things that we might do to enhance the cancer research mission and the cancer care mission. So, you know, great points. And we look forward to assisting as we can as the 102 cancer centers. Well, this is a milestone because it's our first podcast. So what I want to tackle in our last set of topics is another milestone, a really important one for all of us. It's how we all came to be here. And it's the 50th anniversary of the National Cancer Act. And I'm really looking forward to what unfolds in the rest of this year as we get an opportunity to look backwards at the progress that's happened over the last 50 years while we plan the next 50 uh, of progress and hopefully elimination of cancer. Can we talk, maybe tie in our themes? So how does cancer health equity figure into this 50th anniversary celebration? And can you give us an overview of, of what we might expect in this next year as we celebrate 50 years of the National Cancer Act? Yeah, I think this is a really important anniversary. And you know, I, it's become clear to me that a lot of people who um, don't actually know what the National Cancer Act did. And so, you know, and, and, and I think that Understanding why that act was so important is, is really uh, the answer to your question about what, it, what it's doing today, you know, what it means for uh, a topic like cancer health equity right now. And, and so it did a lot of important things, you know, maybe most important to AACI is it really effectively created the modern cancer center program. I mean, cancer centers did technically exist prior to the NCA, but they weren't anything like they are now. The centers program for the NCI is, is really a an amazing resource, I think in part because of this federal designation, this imprimatur from a federal statute saying that, you know, we're going to create these centers and, and, and they became things that institutions really, really wanted to have and, and became, you know, would work very hard to obtain NCI designation. And, and that's been very good for the NCI because these institutions recruit great scientists and focus on cutting edge care and focus on their catchment areas. They often use a lot of their state resources or their clinical revenue or other, other funds to support cancer research. And so I think the whole enterprise of cancer research has been lifted by this federal law saying we're going to have cancer centers. Another really important thing the National Cancer Act did was create SEER, basically the SEER database of cancer statistics. It said that the nation has to have a good accounting of cancer incidence and mortality which led to, you know, this elaborate structure of SEER contractors and an interaction with CDC you know, state uh, data that we collect every year. And now we have really good data on uh, cancer outcomes in the United States. We know numbers of cases. We know if incidence is going up or down. We know if mortality is going up or down. And uh, those data are absolutely critical for a topic like cancer health disparities because you really have to know, yeah, if you can't measure it, you don't really know what the problems are. And it would almost be shocking to a non-cancer researcher to realize that this kind of a data set doesn't exist in every disease area. There are you know, really important topics in American health where the data are not nearly as good. So the, the one that became very strikingly obvious to me when I first started it in, in the federal government was, you know, data around opioid deaths. That is, there's no seer for opioid de deaths, right? I mean, th those data become available through a, a hodgepodge of, you know, state and uh, local uh, databases that are cobbled together. 
And so to really tell what's happening in an important topic like that, often the data are years out of date and they're not uniformly collected across the country. And so there's some real issues with uh, interpreting uh, those sorts of national statistics. And, and SEER has uh, you know, obviated that uh, for cancer where we have really, really strong statistics. In fact, I, I, I like to say that SEER is probably the most important set of cancer data statistics in the world. It's our single uh, book of things, truth that we all rely on. I, yeah, I, and, 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 but you, don't, you, don't take, you take it for granted because you don't realize that you know, we don't have this for other you know, disease areas. It's, it's sort of relatively uh, unique to cancer. Then, uh, you know, also the National Cancer Act uh, created uh, this sort of um, link between the NCI directly and Congress and the White House. So it gave us the ability to write the, the so-called bypass budget where we tell Congress, you know, every year what, how, you know, directly what we would use uh, extra monies for. Uh, and that's a relatively uh, a privilege to be able to, to speak directly to Congress and, and talk to them about uh, the opportunities in cancer research. It also made the NCI director presidential appointee which is, uh, it, it has a lot of implications for the NCI, meaning, uh, you know, there's more turnover in the NCI leadership than other parts of the NIH. And I think there's a better connection to uh, the White House and HHS because of uh, the presidential appointment. Uh, and then, the, you know, the, some of the advisors to the NCI are presidentially appointed, like the President's Cancer Panel and, and members of the National Cancer Advisory Board. Uh, created Frederick National Lab. So, you know, it gave uh, the NCI some space. Uh, to, to create a biomedically uh, research facility that's federally run. Uh, this is really the only large federal biomedical research facility in, in the United States. And it was absolutely vital, for example, during the pandemic. You know, this is the, you know, if you need somebody all of a sudden to get a bunch of you know, antibody kits and see which of these hundreds of kits work and which ones don't, uh, that's a good project for a federal lab. And, and we were able to do that uh, very quickly, for example, up at Frederick National Lab. But it's also how the NCI has done important things like the Cancer Genome Atlas and the RAS Initiative and some of the real signature projects of the National Cancer Institute. It did many other things beyond uh, those examples, but it's, it's really important infrastructure. It also provided additional funding to the NCI, which I'm sure was very important to the NCI director back then. So, you know, the, the, uh, the financial support was important. And maybe the most important thing the National Cancer Act did, we, we kind of forget about this now, but it was really revolutionary in its time was it made cancer a disease one could talk about. So it was no longer this whispered diagnosis that people were uh, sort of scared to mention publicly that they had. Uh, it took cancer from, you know, a disease of the shadows to a, a, a something that we would, you know, a nationally uh, talk about. And people like Ann Landers and Mary Lasker and, you know, Sidney Farber had these national conversations about what it meant to have a cancer diagnosis and and uh, you know, why cancer wasn't necessarily a death sentence. So it provided hope for these patients. And I think that's really been a, a big part of the national advocacy movement. You know, all these great advocacy groups that we have now in the United States that are really trying to advance cancer progress and cancer research, you know, were sort of empowered, if you will, to some extent by the National Cancer Act. So it's a really important set of uh, authorities and uh, a change in the national mindset regarding cancer. And therefore, it's, a, it's an anniversary worth commemorating. I think at the same time, though, it's really important to say that we're not celebrating this. I mean, we, have it, we still have 600,000 Americans die per year of cancer in the United States. We have not ended cancer in the 50 years of the National Cancer Act. And so the, while we have made, I think, a tremendous amount of progress, uh, there's still, from the point of view of the patients, uh, we haven't made enough progress. And so uh, we really need to take this moment to tell the American public and Congress, you know, why... Uh, this has been a good investment to date and, and, and why we need to keep this up, you know, what we will do in the next 
uh, years and decades with regard to cancer progress and, and why the opportunities right now are particularly bright. Yeah, I, I really thank you for that overview. And from my perspective, the National Cancer Act gave us something invaluable, a mission and a sense of purpose and something to get behind and a platform for which to show that research, be it the most fundamental basic cancer research or healthcare delivery research, population focused or, or clinical research has an impact and improves lives for patients and their families. And I'm so thankful to the NCI as, as being the place that convenes all of us, or at least all the NCI designated centers and many of the AACI centers who are partners toward that goal. Agree. We have so much more to do, but where would we be without the National Cancer Act at this moment? So I do want to pause to at least take a deep breath and look at the progress that's happened and be thankful. And you've been a huge part of that, Dr. Sharpless, and your leadership of NCI. I want to thank you for everything that you do. The AACI members, all the 102 centers are your partners toward this common mission and common purpose. And we really look forward to the next several years of determining how we can accelerate progress against cancer. So thank well, you thank you so much. much for the opportunity to speak today. It's uh, you know great to catch up and, and talk about uh, areas of mutual benefit. And as I said at the outset, the AACI has been such an important partner with the NCI for our progress. And, 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 and the news is good. We're really making progress against cancer at an amazing rate. We need uh, all you know the, uh, to work together toward that common goal. And the AACI has always been so helpful in that regard to the NCI. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharpless. Thank you for listening to Accelerating Equity, Cancer Care for All, a podcast from AACI, the Association of American Cancer Institutes. AACI is accelerating progress against cancer by empowering North America's leading cancer centers in their shared mission to alleviate suffering. Learn more at aaci-cancer.org.